Well, welcome everyone, and thank you for choosing to worship with us today. Uh, My name is Andrew Conrad, and I am uh, the senior pastor here. We've been in a series called um, Sent, the Acts of Christians that Changed the World. It's kind of a thematic study in parts of the book of Acts. And starting a couple of weeks ago, we started the series within that about being sent into a culture of idolatry. And so we're looking at this concept of idolatry and idols from now up until Easter. And um, so Jake talked last week about idols related to self-sufficiency. And before that, we talked about the Stoics and the Epicureans. And and today we come to something different. Um, In Acts chapter uh, 18, it says that Paul gets to Corinth and he stays there for 18 months. Um, And we know that it says he stayed there for a while. We know that he stayed there for 18 months. He stayed there. He was a tent maker, and one of the reasons that he was a tent maker was because it was profitable because Corinth is located um, on this isthmus, this little piece of land that connects the Adriatic and Aegean Sea. There's now a canal through it, but there used to be an overland bridge to take ships, so it's a seaport there. And every two years, they held the Isthmian Games, which were second in size only to the Olympic Games, which were every four years. And so people would come and flood in from everywhere and needed tents. And so Paul was a tent maker along with Priscilla and her husband Aquila who helped him a lot in his ministry. Corinth was a center of commerce, temples, and spiritual life. And I have a slide, I think, with a picture uh, from when I got to go visit Corinth. Um, So that's the ancient road that comes up from the sea. And left and right there would have been um, marketplaces, even a synagogue, um, and then which Jake talked about last week, and then the marketplace... Uh, at the end of that road where um, judgment would have been rendered, where courts were, and all lined with temples along there. There was a temple for Apollo. But the mountain that you see behind it, they call the Acrocorinth. And there was a temple on that mountain. You can still go up there and visit it. And it was the, it was the temple to the goddess Aphrodite. You know who Aphrodite was? Goddess of love, sex, and pleasure. Corinth was positioned right below that mountain. So it's no wonder that um, Paul goes into Corinth and as he writes his letter to Corinthians, he has to address that issue. We saw, um, uh, and they told us there, we didn't see, they told us there how there would be, often they would say there would be footprint marks from the ritual prostitution, the sex slaves, that would stamp things in the dust saying, follow me to the mountain. Um, because ritual prostitution was part of what they did uh, in their temple rites. It was a part of the way they, do, they secured the divine favor of the gods of Aphrodite. Um, and so that's important to understand against the background of what God teaches in Scripture, right, about sexual immorality and it being spiritual adultery. In fact, idolatry. It's what we read in our confession this morning from Jeremiah 2 and 3. You could look through the rest of the prophets to see more about how God compares it in that way. It's important for me to say, too, that God is not anti-sex. God is for romance and love and sex. He invented it, but he knows the abuse of it leads to idolatry. And that's what I want you to get understand today. It is a way of having an idol in life. And Paul is sent into that culture in Corinth. It was in the Old Testament. It was in Paul's day in Corinth. It's in our day today. Right? It's humanity. Some things never change. But let's look with Paul as he writes to the people of Corinth 
in his letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Follow along with me as I read it. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word which is relevant yesterday, today, and forever. Will you use it to shape our lives, to convict us, but also to lead us in the end to rejoice? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to try to help you understand today on on a difficult topic like this is that sexual immorality is actually a quest for something godlike. It's actually a quest for something godlike. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that in, in two main points, two different ways. And the first is this, that, that we should resist sexual immorality because it's actually idolatry. It's propping something up to be godlike. Verse 9, Paul tells us that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's strong words. He says, don't you know that? That ought to make, you know, the people of Corinth are probably questioning, like, what are you saying? And he, He's saying, I mean, you should ask, is your faith genuine? Do you really believe in Jesus. Because if you believe in Jesus, it will shape your behavior. If your behavior is no different from the rest of the world, then maybe you should ask that question, am I a Christian? And what Paul is upholding is the biblical sexual ethic that's been upheld by the Protestant church, the Catholic church, Orthodox churches, uh, Judaism for centuries, is that it's intended between a man and woman in marriage. And that's what he's upholding. That's what the Bible is, is teaching. But it's interesting to note here that as Paul goes through and talks about this, he talks through a whole category of sexual sins, of sexual immorality that covers all kinds of ranges outside of marriage. He talks about um, sexual immorality. That word is a a word that just denotes it can involve all kinds of things. So it could involve pornography. It it involves the hookup culture. Uh, It involves adultery. It involves homosexuality, as he mentioned. Now, I know as soon as I say that, right, that's, I've just said a lot of things and a lot of things that are very sensitive to our culture and our day and our age. So I would like you to take a deep breath and exhale and relax 
invite you just to listen with me a little bit here as we talk about these briefly. Let me say this. Homosexuality is not new. It's mentioned here in the Bible. We know it's practiced in Greek culture because this is a letter to the Greeks in Corinth. Paul writes to the Romans about it in Romans. So it's been practiced around the world for centuries, right? It's nothing new. The Bible also says that homosexuality is unnatural. In Romans 1, it talks about that, that it's a sin. That those, and, then, and then there's those who look at the Bible and say, no, it doesn't say that. And, and, I, and I understand people want to see the Bible and have it fit what they want it to fit. Um, but to take liberties with the Bible, to make it say what you want it to say, if we do that, then I quit, like today, right now, because I have no job. My job is to teach you the Bible, but if it's not true, then, then what am I doing? If we're just going to make it say what we want, I'll go do something else. So I don't think it's good to ta- as a practice to say we're uncomfortable. Let's make the Bible say what we want it to say. It's a dangerous thing to try to say. You're really creating your own religion, crafting your own, rather than saying I'll be part of the Christian religion. And we should just be honest about that and say that's what we're doing. So the Bible talks about it and says that. Uh, and the third thing I want to say is that for those who, who um, are same-sex attracted and perhaps feel like they have always been that way, that that's all they've ever known, that may be true. Right? Maybe that's the way you've always felt. But in Scripture tells us that we are born into this world, sinful. Sinful from birth, from the time my mother conceived me, says David in Psalm 51. So that's not a surprise, right? We all are affected in all parts of our being, how we think, what we feel, what we do. Every part of us is touched by sin. Some people are more prone to addiction. Just because there's something that's deeply embedded in us doesn't mean that it's unaffected by sin or the way God wants it to be. We're so affected by it that it, that it literally affects all areas of our life. I have relatives and friends who are same-sex attracted, and, um, and I don't hate them. I love them. And, and some of you, I know, who have experienced same-sex attraction, I, I don't hate you. I love you. I, I am sorry for times in which the church has not treated people from the LGBTQ community well. Like, there's things we believe that the Bible says, but we are still supposed to love people. And every person, as a human being, has dignity because God has given them dignity. And you deserve that dignity. The last thing I'm going to say about this part of it right here is that the list isn't only about sexuality or even homosexuality. I don't know if, you know, like that that just drew us, like we got sucked into that vortex. But Paul's list goes on. Those who do not inherit the kingdom of God also includes those who are, he says in in that verse, um, thieves, those are people who steal, right? Swindlers, people who rob people their money. Those are the people that call you on the phone and say, yeah, you're, this is bad. We need you to give us your social security number. Yeah, don't answer those calls, right? They're swindlers, okay? Um, greedy people, drunkards, 
slanderers, the verbal assassins who attack people with their mouths? What does that mean? Why am I saying that? Because it's really important that you hear this. Sex does not keep you out of heaven. Sexual immorality does not keep you out of heaven. I'm going to say it again. Sexual immorality does not keep you out of heaven. Sin does. And it's all kinds of sins. And we're all in that boat. It's just one of the many things that is a barrier between us and God unless we find ourselves reconciled in Christ. What Paul is saying here is that if these things are not just things you struggle with, but things that become your identity, then you have a problem. Because what you are doing is making it your idol. Whatever, it, whichever any of them are. If you're making it your idol, you have a problem. Because it's being sh- you're shaping your life and your identity according to that track. And you will serve that. And that, he says, is serious danger. And that's why he says... In verse 18, flee sexual immorality. As he's pleading with the people in Corinth, with the temple, or the temple on the mount behind them, to Aphrodite, and the thousands of sex slaves that are there. Flee sexual immorality. When he says that, the language there has this force of make it your habit to do this. Okay, Make it your lifestyle to flee from it, to turn away from it. It means you have to fight against it. You have to fight the very desires that rise up within you for lust, for pornography, for adultery, for homosexuality, whatever it is. You have to fight those very desires and those thoughts that you want to entertain it and think about it and then acting on it in terms of with your body. You need to fight all those things. You're fighting against the appetites of your soul. And it's not enough to just say, to yourself or to somebody else, hey, just stop it. Just stop. And the reason that's not enough is because it's like if you have mice in your house. You could set a, a, a bait trap or one that actually does the job, the spring trap. Um, you could set either one of those to get the mouse, right? And those work sometimes. It's like saying, stop. Don't come here. But they keep showing up. You're like, what is going on? And the problem is, you haven't taken away the food source. You see, what you have to do in order to stop something is actually replace it with something better. With something truer. You can't just stop. You've got to stop and then replace. You've got you to resist and, and replace it. And Paul is saying here that... You need to replace your idols, including your idol of sexual immorality, with the way God designed it to be, which would be intended between a man and woman in marriage. Now, but notice this, because you may be saying, but what if I'm not married? Neither is Paul. Paul's single, right? And so what Paul is about to point us to is hugely beneficial for all the hurts that we experience in life related to this. Because he's not married, and he knows. He's saying... There is something truer. There is something better. And he says we've got to replace sexual idolatry with something better. 
identity in Christ. This is the second thing I want to talk to you about and kind of the main thing here. We need to replace it with identity in Christ. Look at verse 11 with me again, if you would. I think we can put that one on the screen. Did I put that one in there? It says, and that is what some of you were. He just gave his laundry list of all those sins. This is what some of you were. But, but here's the good news. You were washed, right? Made clean, sanctified, made clean. That means to be made holy, made clean, made pure. God considers you pure. You were justified. God considers you not guilty in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You see, that's the battle. He says, but that's not who you are now. That's not your identity. It's what you were. Because now you are this. And he pleads with them to go on and base their identity on that. And then he does something interesting in a few verses here that I, that I want to point out to you. He recognizes everybody has a quest, a search for something. A search for meaning and significance in different ways. And we're all searching for something because there's something we have to have that shapes us. And there's, there's three things I want to point out here that he does in this way. One is a search for freedom. It's in verse 12. He's quoting here sayings that the Corinthian people have. That's why they're in quotes in your Bible. The saying is, I have the right to do anything. Sounds very American. I'm free. I can do anything. Right? I mean, that's, that's what they're saying. It's a, it's a search for freedom. And Paul's saying, okay, in your search for freedom you might be mistaken because even freedom has limits. Let me just give you a quick example of this, right? Fish are free to explore all the waters that they want to explore. But they are not free to live on dry land. It's actually a death sentence. Freedom is not absolutely and autonomously free. Freedom is always limited. We live in a free country, but it's bounded by laws and rules. Fish get to live in water, not on dry land. Right? Freedom has limits. And what Paul is saying is there's two tests that you should ask. If you're, if you're saying, okay, well, I'm free. I can do what I want. He's saying there's two tests you should ask. And he, and he asks these right in verses 12 and 13 there. He says, yeah, but is it beneficial? Is it actually good? Is it the good that Jesus spoke about? And is it good for others? And is it good for you? And then he says, who's your master? Are you really just making this new thing your master, becoming enslaved to it? Because if your freedom leads you to do things that end up enslaving you, then you're really not free again. You just become enslaved to your own erotic desires. John Brown wrote, every man is naturally a slave. That's who we are. We all enslave ourselves to something, to some master. And he goes on and he says, and, the only, and he only is truly free whom grace has made a free man. You're only going to be truly free, and this is what Paul is saying, is when you discover your freedom in redemption. Look at verse 20 with me. Let's put that on the screen quickly. It says, you were bought at a price. That's that word there. That's, that's redemption. Redemption is you're redeeming a coupon code. You're getting something back for it, a value that's associated, that's transferred, Right? You're being bought back. And Paul is saying, oh, you want freedom? You're being bought out of the slavery and purchased by God so that you are set free to live the way God has designed you to live. That's the freedom you need, that freedom of redemption. What was the price of that freedom? We sang about it this morning. Oh, come to the altar, 
father's arms open wide, right? The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Right? We put value on everything in society. We always do. Everybody has. Money's valuable. You know what the cost to redeem you was? The precious blood of God's own son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to be free? Hear what he is saying. You are so worth it. So worth it. I love you so much that I will buy you with my very own life. That's your value to me. That's supreme value. The highest value. And that's God's value of you. That's the freedom you want. And so Paul then says, so honor God with your body. That's how you are free. Honor God with your body. The second thing is, it's not just a search for freedom, but there's a search for ecstasy. This is in verse 13 when he says, he quotes it again, the food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. You see, this is their saying, and what they believed was, that the spirit was eternal and good, but the body wasn't. It was material. It wasn't going to last. It just when, when you went to the next life, you didn't have your body. And so their logic was, hey, live for the moment. Live life full of pleasure. Pursue ecstasy. Enjoy what you want in your body. They're saying, like, just like food is for the stomach, so sex is for the body. And they'll both be gone, and it won't matter. And Paul's saying, no, that's, that's actually not true. Paul's saying, there is limits. What you do with your body matters because you are made and designed body and soul together, interwoven. They're not just separated that way. And it matters. It has an impact. And there's actually limits to it. But why? Why limit what we do in our body? Well, just like they say, okay, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and, you know, the analogy would be sex for the body. Eat food without limits and see how it works out for you. It's not healthy. We know this, right? So the same thing is to say, if you just want to have your freedom and ecstasy to pursue whatever you want to pursue, it doesn't mean it's healthy for you. There's limits to it. In my generation growing up, you know, it was Madonna that proclaimed, I'm just a material girl living in a material world. Which is to say, you got a body, enjoy it, do what you want. But in your generation, maybe growing up, it was Miley Cyrus who said it's our party and we can do what we want and love who we want. But it's the same message, right? Just do what you want. Enjoy life with your body. But Paul's saying, wait a second, but there's limits. There's actually costs to that. Because you're not limitless in that way. What you do with your body matters because your body and soul are bound together and because especially in intimacy, you experience dignity and beauty. And to deny that means you're trying to act either like a machine or a mere animal, and it's not the way we're made. And so Paul says what you really need to do is discover ecstasy in something greater, like the resurrection. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, he mentions the resurrection that by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. Now, this is coming right after their statements of what we can do. And he says, oh, you need something better. You need, 
resurrection power. You need to be raised from the dead. You want something transcendent? Something, I mean, we're in March Madness, and we're going to talk about transcendence and national champions, and congratulations to Randolph-Macon. Men's basketball team won the national for D3, I think it was. Um, And we're talking about transcendence. Resurrection, that's transcendence. Walking out of a tomb, having new life, that's transcendence. That's ecstasy. That's joy. That is eternal life. You and I will live in a body forever. And it won't ache and fall apart. That'll be so great. So, so great. Mine hurts right now because I rode the bike too long yesterday. We will eat. We will drink. We will run. We will play. We will live full of joy for eternity. Ecstasy in a transcendent way. Paul's saying that's something you ought to live for. And that resurrection is not just for then in the distant future when you're like, but who cares? I'm so far away. It's for life now. It changes life now. The resurrection power of the Spirit gives us new life now when you put your faith in Christ. And it changes you. It shapes you over time. Science actually tells us this, right? Science has confirmed your brain can be rewired. And we know that. Your brain can be rewired. Counselors work with you to help heal your emotions and your psyche. In theological terms, Paul would say, your nature is changed. So that you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. There's a stereotype that stereotypes are often at least partly true, but not universally true, right? The stereotype is this. Men give love in order to get sex. Women give sex in order to get love. Make what you want, whatever that. I don't, here's my point in this. We can say that this desire for pleasure and ecstasy is the thing that's wrong and that's sexually immoral. We need to recognize that Paul is saying, no, there's even a greater quest than that. And that quest, that search, is for intimacy. And finding that in the wrong place can also be wrong. In verses 18 and 16, he talks about this. Will you put verse 18 on the screen for us, please? It says, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Right? Outside, inside. And then 16, verse 16, please. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her own body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis there. How God made men and women in marriage and the two will become one flesh. What is Paul saying? He's saying this union that we're having. Is, this is the desire, the search for intimacy, for romance, for deep connection. Embody one flesh. And if you ignore God's design for pleasure and intimacy and make it casual and diluting the intimacy, it is going to affect you more deeply than you think. The casual hookup culture isn't costless. What you do with your body has profound implications on your psychology and your emotional health. Read an article in Psychology Today. Uh, It was an article published in 2013, a study of university students. The title of it is How Casual Sex Can Affect Our Mental Health. The study showed that engaging in the hookup culture reportedly uh, reported greater psychological distress, including lower levels of self-esteem, lower levels of life satisfaction, and lower levels of happiness. Additionally, it increased depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. Instead of this pleasure being 
to promote happiness, it actually ended up hurting people. That's what Paul is saying. Recognize this quest for intimacy is important. And he says it long before Freud's influence and psychology today. It'll affect you psychologically. It'll affect you spiritually. And what Paul is saying is you need to discover intimacy of union with Christ. And it's in verses 15 and 17 where he talks about this and he's comparing uniting with a prostitute to uniting with Jesus. And you're like, whoa, hold on, what's going on here? Yeah, he's not actually talking about that event, but he's comparing the union of it, right? Because in that culture, the physical union in that way was a way to connect to the gods. And Paul is saying, yes, there's a way you can connect to God. It is not this way. And the union is greater and deeper and more lasting. Why is sexual intimacy so powerful? Because you are experiencing intimacy and beauty, which has a spiritual aspect to it. In that moment, you are taking, being taken to a place that is tender, a place that is vulnerable, a place that is saying, okay, I'm willing to be known, completely known before you and with you, embraced and loved. And why is this so powerful? Paul says it's not simply powerful because of the human way we're designed, but because it's actually the way God wants to connect with you. In other words, the Bible repeatedly uses a metaphor of marriage in this intimacy and says it's a picture of Christ and his followers, the church. That this intimacy to be in a tender place fully exposed, fully known before Jesus, and still fully loved, is that kind of intimacy that we need to know. It's where Jesus says, I see you. I see your hurts. I see your scars. I see the abuse that's been committed against you. I see the pain. I see the things that you chased and the other other lovers you pursued. I know it. And it's not scaring me off. I'm all in on you because I love you. That's the hope of the gospel. That is far more powerful and deeper than what we chase after the other lovers as we read in Jeremiah. It's why God is saying, you just chase after whoever, but they don't stay with you. It doesn't work for you. Why do you give up this? One very practical application is that if you are struggling right now in, with sexual immorality in any way, we um, have launched some time ago um, 423 groups. It's a ministry. You can go to a website, 423 Communities, to learn more about it. If you want to know more about it, talk to me or Brian. We will point you to the group that exists in our church. It's a group of people who are committed to finding a way out of the shame caused by sexual sin. Saying, okay, how does Jesus meet us in this? We will help you. We will walk with you in it. Turning from sexual idolatry, making it your God, means you've got to resist and replace, right? Like the mice. You can't just trap them. You've got to replace the food source. Resist. Replace. And one of the ways you do that is by rejoicing. When you can learn to rejoice in God, 
then you're making him the greatest thing and your idols begin to lose their allure. They fade. Tim Keller writes about it this way. He says in the book Counterfeit Gods, to rejoice, and I write, this might be on the screen, to rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. Letting go of your idols because you can rejoice in Christ. There was a story that was printed um, in Christianity Today in 2013 um, about a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She told her story of converting to Christianity. And the title of the piece was My Train Wreck Conversion. Colon, as a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians. Then I became one. Here's what the article says. She valued her rights, her identity. Why deny yourself? One person treated her differently. Many Christians mocked and hated her with Bible verses. Ken did not. He invited her to dinner. Ken and his wife, she writes, Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of gentleness and mercy. And because Ken Ken did not invite me to his church, I knew it was safe to be friends. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. Ken was there. Floyd was there. The church had been praying for me for years, was also there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. Idols, right? But the voice of God sang a love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I have not forgotten the blood of Jesus surrendered for this life. And my former life still lurks in the edges of my heart. Redeemed, resurrected, union, still in the struggle with this life and this body. But it's something better. It's something truer. It's something deeper. It's something eternal. And it's what you and I desperately need. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us as we look in this series of idolatry and the various topics that we look at to be willing to hear with open ears and open eyes and receptive hearts. Lord, would you help us to be people who are full of grace, gentle and kind, and yet stand in your scriptures on your word. And would you change us, change me, start with me, start with us, Peel away our layers. Help us loosen our grip. 
and cast down our idols that we might rejoice in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.